If you have your Bibles with you, please open them to John chapter 5. Pilgrim's Progress, it is said, is the second most read book in the English language after the Bible, um, which may or may not be true, um, either because people don't read the Bible that much or because people read Harry Potter a lot more than they read Pilgrim's Progress. It's one of those two things, I'm sure. It has been beloved for centuries since he has written it. Uh, and it is one of the great works of English literature, and it is unashamedly an allegory. It is an allegory in every detail. You can't pass over a detail of the work without seeing how it is meant for more than what is just being said there. After all, when you name people things like faithful and contrite, it's hard to miss the, the obvious symbolism that is there. And one of the reasons why it is such a great work for children is because they get to be in on the joke. They understand the symbolism that is going on behind those things. And one of the great reasons why it's great for adults as well is that we can see an even deeper meaning behind those things, having lived out many of the truths that we read there. It's beloved not just because we have an insight into it, but because it is our progress. It is our journey. It is our pilgrimage as well. After all, it's not for nothing that Bunyan named the lead character Christian. We are all Christian in a sense. We are all Christian as we read his journey as well. Allegory is a a powerful way then to get people to understand their own journey as seen through a different story and seen in a different light. Scriptures use allegory quite a bit. We might not think that that is the case, but it actually does. The Old Testament uses it in many different spots. In Ezekiel 17, there is the, the allegory of the two eagles and the vine. In something like Judges 9, which we will get to in Sunday school at some point in time, we have the, the allegory of the trees and the bramble. We have David being confronted by Nathan with a parable, which is nothing less than an allegory. And then when we come to the New Testament, the only the only parable that actually gets an explanation gets an allegorical explanation. Uh, so as Jesus is explaining to his followers what the sower means, the, the parable of the seeds and the parable of the sower, he explains it to them allegorically. It is something that comes up quite a lot. Now, typically what we think of when we think of allegory is somebody taking a story and fashioning a story which is not true. It doesn't have reality to it, but it, it symbolizes something that actually happens in reality. So the facts are not true, but the reality is true. We know that it doesn't have to work like that, though. Paul says that the births of both Ishmael and Isaac in Galatians 4 is nothing less than an allegory. He treats these things allegorical. That means that they have a a meaning that symbolizes something more than just how they were born. I think that we have something of an allegory, a limited, narrow allegory, but an allegory here in John chapter 5. As John is relating this miracle to us, uh, we can see something like Pilgrim's Progress of our own selves in this man. So let us read John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man who was there who had been an invalid for 38 years When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. 
And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more. Nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. May God add his blessing upon the reading of his word. Let us first look at the man as we deal with this particular passage. What are we to do with this man? The most sensible comparison that we get, and the most obvious one if you've read through the Gospel of John, is the man who's going to come up in John chapter 9. The only thing that we could really talk about if we we're going to compare the two is how much more vivid and lively the man in chapter 9 is compared to this man. This man is painted in grays. That man is in technicolor. This man seems flat and two-dimensional. That man seems three-dimensional and well-rounded. It's what literature folks call a round character. He's been filled out. He has got personality oozing out of him. This man seems like, well, seems like a lump of something who knows, but he doesn't seem like he's got much of anything going for him. One scholar, as a matter of fact, writing about this in verse 7 and, and the response of the man to Jesus' question, which doesn't seem like much of a response at all to a yes or no question, says this. A very charitable reading of the invalid's response might take it as a direct response to Jesus' question. The depth of his desire for healing can be measured by his persistent presence at the pool when the waters are stirred. But John's deft, he says, John's deft, he doesn't know how deft it is. John's deft portrait of the invalid throughout this chapter paints him in far more dour hues. He tries to avoid difficulties with the authorities by blaming the one who has healed him, in verse 11. He is so dull that he has not even discovered his benefactor's name, in verse 13. Once he finds out, he reports to Jesus to the authorities, in verse 15. In this light, Verse 7 reads less as an apt and subtle response to Jesus' question than as the crotchety, this is in a scholarly work, the crotchety, and I don't know how old this guy is. I'm really building up the tension. I don't know how old this gentleman was when he wrote this. Probably around 40, so just bear with him. The crotchety grumblings of an old man, and not very perceptive man, who thinks he is answering a stupid question. In terms of initiative, quick-wittedness, eager faith, and a questing mind, this invalid is the painful opposite of everything that characterizes the wonderful character in John 9. Crotchety grumblings. That's fantastic. Not for the guy. Uh, it's, it's fantastic that I got to read that this week in a, in a scholarly, scholarly work. I wish he would help us understand how he really feels about this guy. <laughs> if he could paint, he paints, by the way, that scholar paints this man more vividly than John does, like far, far more vividly. I think that he's wrong. 
I don't necessarily think that he is the equivalent of the man in John 9. But I think that his understanding of the man, his slow-wittedness or his dull response or the fact that he is a crotchety old man is probably misplaced. As a matter of fact, when I look at the man, and the more I read it, by the way, I agreed with that before this week, but the more I read, the more I thought this man isn't any of those things. We know nothing about him. He's a two-dimensional character, and I think, I think I know why. The reason why is, of course, Hello Kitty. So Hello Kitty, that Japanese cat, right, that has very limited features. She's got a couple of eyes, she's got a nose, she's got a hair bow in, and almost nothing else. Now, for those of you who don't have little girls and haven't seen them around, Hello Kitty is a well-known brand. As a matter of fact, it rakes in more than $8 billion a year in revenue and is the second, second, next to a cartoon mouse, the second highest grossing franchise of all time at over $50 billion in revenue since that little cat was drawn, okay? Why? Why is that so prosperous? Why does it make so much money? Now, I had never asked myself that question before because I had never actually given it a second thought, but there was a, several months ago, my family and I were at Center for the Arts, and they had a display. You know, they've got art in there. There's a good center for that. So they, have a, they had a display in there, and there was somebody talking about Hello Kitty and about how it's minimalist, okay? And he said the, the, the beauty of it is it has no features. The eyes are literally just dots. It, she doesn't have a mouth, she, if we can talk like that about Hello Kitty. She doesn't have a mouth, and he said because of that, she has absolutely no facial expression. She's, she is this man. She has no emotion. She has nothing. And so he said the reason why this particular design has caught so many people's attention is because she becomes whatever you want. If you are happy, then you can picture her happy. If you are sad, then you can picture her sad. But you get to impress upon her everything that you are. I think that that is a really good description of what this man is. I have no doubt that this man is probably more than John is portraying him here, but John goes to great lengths to take away from this man any sort of personality at all. Let's look at a couple of these things. For one, he talks about the man being in suffering for 38 years. He was lame for 38 years. But that answers part. That's a detail without much detail. What we really want to know is how old he is. So the scholar calls him an old man, but he could be 40. He could be 38. could be 70. We have no idea how old he actually is. More than that, the idea of him being 38 probably stems from the idea, from John's perspective of putting it in there, of Deuteronomy 2.14, where Moses records this. At the time from our leaving Kadesh Barnea, where the spies got rejected, until we crossed the book, Zered was 38 years until the entire generation, that is the men of war, had perished from the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. This 38 years was the time it took for all of that generation to die before the people could be comforted by going into the promised land, before they could be healed by having their own homes, before all of the good things came to them, 38 years. Not the full 40, just 38. It's a symbol that this man is not home. He is still without comfort and consolation. He is lacking in joy. He is wanting something better. But what's more than that, he is simply sick. Now, when you read the ESV here, it says, in these, in verse 3, lay a multitude of invalids. Okay, then he names the kind of invalids. Blind, which is 
weird because I'm not sure that blind people are actually considered invalid, but blind, lame, and paralyzed. One was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Now, the reason why they translate that word invalid is because it's clear that later he's having problems getting down into the water to be healed, okay? He knows the water is there. He can see it. We know that his sickness is not in his eyes, but he can't get there. So we assume that means he is paralyzed. That's probably a good assumption. There's no reason to doubt that. The interesting bit, though, is that that word doesn't necessarily mean invalid, as a matter of fact, John uses two words which would imply that. He says they are lame and paralyzed people there. But this man is called neither lame nor paralyzed. The word that is used there is simply sick. That's all it says about him. So if you go back to older versions of the English, so, such as the KJV, which uses the word infirmity, the NAS from the late 1800s, which uses the word sickness, the NAS, the New American Standard from 1995, uses the word illness much better captures it. He is simply ill. This is a word that, that works the same way that sick does in our culture. Sick could mean that you have a cough one time that morning. Oh, I'm feeling a little sick. But cancer patients can also say, well, I'm sick. I have cancer. Those are clearly two ends of the spectrum, totally separate ends of the spectrum. The word sick covers a multitude of things. This gentleman doesn't have a specific sickness. John simply calls him sick. He, he covers the gambit. He is everything. We are never told actually what he is. John could have called him lame or paralyzed. He says it right there in verse 4. There were lame and paralyzed people there, but he doesn't call this man that. Very undescriptly, he simply calls him sick. What's more, listen to the answers the man gives to Jesus and to the Jews. Jesus asks him a very pointed question. Do you want to be healed? A very easy answer. What do you want? He's asking about his desires and his want. And what does the man do? He simply records facts for Jesus. Well, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, uh, while I am going another steps down before me. Those are, those are simply facts. The guy sounds like a robot. We're, we, Jesus is asking, what do you want? And what John gives us is not an answer of what he wants at all. He refuses to give us any sort of desire or, or any sort of uh, longing from this man. Instead, all we have is a record of the facts. He's like the embodiment of Joe Friday. That's, so Hello Kitty was for the younger generations. That's for the older generations. Everyone's equal now. Just the facts. To the Jews, they come up to him and they say, it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. And again, what we have from him is no response of either positive or negative to that He's not saying, well, I, I, don't, I don't care. This guy did this or, or, or leave me alone. I, I'm healed now. I, I'm in joy. No, no. He simply says, the man who healed me told me to do this. Again, a report of facts, nothing from the heart, nothing from, from a deep sated desire of joy or happiness or sadness. And we get nothing. It's just facts. Even in his actions, he simply does what's asked of him. Jesus says, take up your mat. And so we find out the guy takes up his mat and walks. We don't even know where he's walking. The guy's just doing circles around the temple. Who knows? He was told to walk, so all we get is that he picks up his mat and walks. The Jews say, who did it? And he says, well, this guy did it. Come and tell us. So he goes and tells them. So listen. The man is not evil. The man is not happy. The man is not good. The man is simply there. He is a blank slate. 
We get almost nothing out of him. Now, in real life, I doubt that anyone could be quite as bland as this gentleman is. But nevertheless, in Scripture, in John 5, he is an incredibly bland person. He simply tells of what has happened to him. The best answer, the best description that we might be able to give that John couldn't have possibly given to him is that he's a robotic person. Well, there is a reason for this. Feelings and emotions give him a personality, and a personality makes him someone. But he's not meant to be someone. He is meant to be anyone. He's meant to be you, friend. This man is you and me. He's all of us. What John is telling us here is something of a picture of our salvation. Did you know, friend, that you were sick? That that you were not in good health? Many of you came in here feeling physically fine, but did you know that you were sick? Did you know that you were lame and paralyzed, blind? Are you aware that you need healing? Are you aware that sin, both in the world and of your own making, has broken you mentally, emotionally, spiritually, economically? We all lack something very important that we need to make us well and to make us whole. At some level, all of you know this, for you all have desires, desires that this man apparently doesn't have. You have them. You have desires to go out and have someone recognize your gifts. You have desires for a community to be close to other people. You have desires for more money because you think that money is going to be able to alleviate some other problem that you have, probably to get you more fun or enjoyment in your life, to be able to get more health or more comfort. Perhaps you want more love or more ease of life. What is it that you want, friend? What is it that you lack? And how, how do you get it? The man waited for something that would never heal him. That pool was never going to make him whole again. Some of you who are using older versions of Scripture, if you were using the KJV or something like that, you probably noticed that I did not read verse because verse 4 is likely a scriptural addition. So when the KJV was made, they had late manuscripts. We're going to talk about this more at a very, very distant time in the future, but they had late manuscripts. As we got better earlier manuscripts, it it found out that verse 4 wasn't in any of them. And so we have a really good reason to think that verse 4 wasn't there. And what probably was there was a bloke, just like you right now, take notes on the side of your Bibles. Somebody did that. He took a note on the side of his Bible trying to explain why this man was waiting for the water to be stirred or they had heard that this was something that happened in Jerusalem. And so he wrote this little note down on the side and somebody thought, oh, that's supposed to be in there. The guy before me copied it wrong. And so he put it in. But nevertheless, it's not supposed to be there. But listen to what he says. An angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and it stirred the water. Whoever stepped in after the first stirring of the water was healed with whatever disease he had. Well, That makes sense if it were true. But John doesn't include it, which means it's likely not true. John knows that this is nothing but raw, raw superstition. It's just superstition. There is no chance that him crawling down to the water, if he could get there first, when it's being stirred up, if he had a person to take him down into the water, that that would ever heal him. It is a pipe dream and one that would never come true. But don't think that this is somehow more superstitious than all of the things that we cling to all the time. 
Will your job give you meaning, comfort, or success? Do you hold on to the superstition that your family is finally going to give you all the respect that you need and make you complete? Or that money will provide all that you will ever need if you only had enough of it? That games will provide all the joy that you could possibly seek? That science and technology will somehow make your problems easier to deal with? Friends, those are nothing but superstitions. And I'm going to tell you, I think that this gentleman has a better chance of being healed by rolling down into that water than you do by going out and buying a speedboat. We might think he's a fool, but we are just as foolish. We hang on to things that we think will heal us from our problems, but they will not. Augustine, writing on these verses, talks about how the colonnades, there are five of them, are like the five books of Moses. Augustine says this, But those books brought forth the sick. They didn't heal them. For the law convicted, not acquitted, sinners. Accordingly, the letter, without grace, made men guilty, whom on confessing grace were delivered. This is what the apostle says. For if a law had been given which could have given life, righteousness would then have been by the law. What is more evident? Have not these words expounded to us both the five porches and also the multitude of sick folk? That is, all of these sick people are gathered around what Augustine says is the five books of Moses. Why? Because they can't ever make alive. Even, friend, even if you could get to the source of all that is good and right and holy, you could get to the scriptures and they tell you They promise you, by God on high, his own promise, if you do these things, you will live. You will have fullness of life and comfort and all of my richest blessings. All you need to do is put them into practice. Do these things and you live. Paul says, you can't do them. They cannot provide life for you. They will only kill you. And he says, what you see there are people who are trying their hardest to find in the world or to find in themselves all of the happiness they can provide and all you see everywhere are sick people. Friend, even if you could try to fix yourself, it would never work. You are an invalid here. You are unable to get to where you need to be. You're unable to make yourself wise and holy. You are unable to give yourself healing. But I know somebody who can the Savior. While that man is incredibly nondescript. John talks about a multitude of sick people. There's a ton of sick people. They are whining. They're blind. They're lame. They're paralyzed. This man doesn't seem any worse off than any of them. And yet Jesus chooses one man. One man. He doesn't heal them all. Are we to find fault with him in this? That although he had power to heal them all, he chose only to heal one? Are we to blame him for not doing all that he could to make all of them feel fullness in their limbs? and eyes. So friend, not everyone will be made well. Scripture testifies to that over and over and over again. The appeal of universalism is a lie. It is a lie. J. 
Jesus is selective in those whom he chooses to show up and heal. It is his prerogative. It is his choice. He is the one with the power. He is the one with the miracle. He can heal those whom he chooses. Jesus is selective. Second, Jesus is the initiator. This man clearly does not know who Jesus is, and he might know who Jesus is. It's said that Jesus kind of got famous around Jerusalem. He went there previously, and he had healed people, and he got a little bit of a following because of it. As we read last week and we talked about last week, Jesus didn't entrust himself to them, right? So he had a bit of notoriety. This man might have looked at him and been like, oh yeah, that's right, you, you're the guy. But it's clear that he doesn't have the faintest idea who he is because Jesus slips away and they come and ask him, who healed you? And he says, I don't know. I don't know who it is. We imagine that Jesus would have liked, and John probably did this to keep himself from repeating, to say the exact same thing to this gentleman that he said to the woman at the well in John 4.10. If you knew the gift of God and who is it that's saying to you, do you want to be healed, you would have asked him and he would have healed you. Yet Jesus heals him anyway. Man has no idea who's standing in front of him. Doesn't even answer Jesus' question particularly well. Jesus seeks him out. He doesn't seek Jesus out. Jesus goes and finds him. He doesn't come to find Jesus. We don't hear him like others, screaming for Jesus to come over to them while people are shushing them. He's not Zacchaeus. He sits there, he is lame, and Jesus finds him. Friend, you are no different. You don't, don't get to think that you came and found Jesus. Jesus was crucified before anyone in here was born. Some of you closer than others, but, but every single person in here was born well after Jesus was crucified, well after he was sent to the world to pay the penalty for your sins, He came on his own initiative. Before anyone thought to call out for God to come down as a man, as Emmanuel, Jesus did that of his own accord. He initiated it. His word has brought it. His spirit has brought you back to life. Jesus is always the initiator. What is most, most ironic about this, though, is that this man asks for nothing and Jesus gives it to him anyway. This man doesn't show faith in any way, shape, or form and Jesus does it anyway. There's not, even, there's not even faith as a retrospective on what Jesus has just done. There's, there's nothing there. It's all about the work of Christ. You should be reminded of John 4.10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, or excuse me, that's the wrong passage. We loved him because he first loved us. Little gray boxes on a sheet get mixed up. John 4.19, 1 John 4.19. We love him because he first loved us. God has initiated with us the fact that he is pursuing us. We don't pursue Third, Jesus is extraordinarily powerful. He's extraordinarily powerful. Don't think for a minute that Jesus was the only person around who was capable of doing miracles, or that at least, at the very least, that Jesus was the only person around who was perceived as being able to do miracles. This was not an isolated thing. People thought that people had this power. When you read these ancient texts, they, they give you hints and solutions as to how you can manipulate the gods to have the power to be able to do miracles, to bring people back to death, to make ladies fall in love with you, to do a whole bunch of different things. And what it is, it's a list of things that you need to gather, items that you need to gather, things that you need to recite, and incantations that you need to make. Because everyone knew that a good magician didn't have power in and of himself. Believe it or not, these people were less full of themselves than we are. 
You hear people today talking about how we have a little bit of God inside ourselves. They thought that they could use the gods, but they didn't think that they were gods. They didn't think that they had power inside of them. Rather, they thought through the recitation of certain words, by, by making certain sounds, by calling on certain gods, that they could invoke those gods to do what they wanted them to do. This perhaps made them powerful, but only by proxy. This is not how Jesus works here. He needs nothing. He doesn't invoke a God. He doesn't pray. He appeals to no other power. He doesn't ask. He says no magic words. Abracadabra does not come out of his mouth, although it would have kind of been cool if it did, but it didn't. He doesn't have some sort of an elaborate dance. He, he does nothing. As a matter of fact, he doesn't even tell him that he's healed. He talks to him like he should have already known that he was healed. It's like we're missing text. Where is the, oh, go, your faith has made you well. No, none of that. He just says, pick up your mat and go. As though we, we missed the entire miracle. It's almost like the miracle didn't happen, like the miracle wasn't even there. It just, it's gone. He, he just speaks. Magicians had to appeal to the God because they had no power. Jesus doesn't have to appeal to anyone else because he has all of the power. I mean, this is even the way miracles in the scripture work. Elijah lays on the widow's son to raise him from the dead and invokes God over him, prays to God for this son to come alive. He looks up at the heavens and prays for fire to come down. It's a simple prayer, but it is a prayer. He has to invoke God for that. Moses, the great miracle worker, does only what God tells him to do. But Jesus walks around doing whatever he wants to do because he can do the miracles all on his own. The one thing that separates him from everybody else, whether it is in scripture or otherwise, is Jesus has the power to do it himself. The magicians in Egypt might have been able to keep up for a while, but not forever. The one time in the book of John that he actually prays before he does a miracle, he specifically mentions that he's not praying for himself. In John eleven forty one, when he is about to raise Lazarus from the dead, the the coup de grace of all of the miracles, he says this, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Okay? That seems to be, I know that you can hear me, Father, and I'm thankful that you finally heard me, so please raise Lazarus from the dead. But he goes on to say, I, I knew that you always heard me, but I said this on account of people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. It's like, the only reason I'm praying this is for you folk. I don't need this. I, I don't need to do this. God always hears me. I don't need to invoke him in prayer. I am powerful. I do what the Father calls me to do, and the Father does everything that I ask of him. So I don't need any of it. Jesus is incredibly and extraordinarily powerful in and of himself. Fourthly, Jesus is also extraordinarily gracious. Again, this man does absolutely nothing. He does nothing to earn this. He does nothing to work for it. He absolutely does nothing. He is healed before he even knows it. He stands up. He doesn't say thanks. He doesn't say anything. He just goes along his way. This is the whole basis of grace that is not based on anything that you do. Not in me, we just sang. It's not in you. There is nothing that you can do to make or buy God's grace. That would make it not grace, as Paul says very often in Romans. It is not grace when you earn it. It is pure grace here. Fifth, Jesus is joyful. I love this, Jesus in this particular little passage, although he is going to break out of his shell and he's going to have a long monologue here in a second, doesn't have it here. All of his little sayings are short and to the point. And in John four, uh, 5, 14, he says, See, 
you are well. And there's, there's, every time I read that, I can't but imagine how happy Jesus is about that. The man did nothing. He didn't even tell him thanks. Jesus apparently had slipped away maybe before he could. Maybe the guy wouldn't have said it at all. But Jesus sees him and he says, see, you're well. I mean, why would Jesus say that? Did he not think that his miracle was going to like carry through? Like, maybe that, that it's magic. It's going to wear off in about five minutes, Cinderella. So enjoy your time. Frolic, frolic, friend, because it's going away. But that he doesn't see, you're well. You're still well, friend. There's a joy in seeing this guy. There is a happiness in it. Listen, when we talk about the parables of Jesus in Luke 16, we mean those things. The, the joy of a poor widow finding a lost coin. The, the joy of a shepherd finding a sheep. The joy of a father getting a son back. Listen, he is happy. He's not sitting there as a sinners come back to him trying to think up how he can say I told you so in like the most gracious possible way, right? He, he's not looming over you, waiting to berate you when you come back. He simply says, see, you were well, friend. You were well. Fifth or sixth, seventh, I don't know, whatever. Jesus wants more for us. He wants more for us. Not only is he incredibly joyful, extraordinarily gracious, powerful, all of the others, but he wants more for you. He looks at this man and he says, Now, see you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. What he doesn't mean is this. He doesn't mean that your lameness or your sickness, whatever it happened to be, was due directly to your sin. He deals with this in John 9 in the same sort of fashion. Was it this man or his parents who sinned that made him blind? Jesus says, eh, neither of those two things. It's not necessarily the case that you are not well or that you are, are sick and disabled in some way simply because you're not doing your job as a Christian or you're not following God. It, it's not always because of your sin in particular. It is because of sin. It's because we live in a fallen world. Now, some cases it's true. If you smoke five packs a day, when you get lung cancer, there's really no one else to blame for that. You probably brought that on yourself. But many people are going to become sick all on their own without any link to anything that they've done. What Jesus means is this. There are worse things than being lame, which is a hard saying for somebody who was lame for 38 years because there are very few things in the ancient world that would have been more hard than that. When he says, see that nothing worse happens to you, he means hell. Friend, you are to go and you are to sin no more so that you don't find yourself one day in a place where you would be gladly, gladly paralyzed to not be there. You would rather enter into heaven with one eye and one hand than you would enter the gates of hell with a full body. Grace isn't a license for us to sin. It is freedom from it. Avail yourselves of the freedom given to you in Christ. For those of you who have had faith and, and God has worked and by keeping yourself from sin, his grace is given to you not simply to free you from sin, but to change you so that you don't sin. First John, the same author, chapter 1, verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 
If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. He says, you're going to sin. Repent and come back. Jesus will forgive you. But I'm writing these things to you so that you don't do that anymore. Everywhere you turn in the Bible, there is a push for holiness. There is never grace given to anyone so that they might continue in sin. Every single place that grace is given, it is meant to transform them so that they will sin no more. Now, that brings us third to the opposition. The opposition here is not the leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, but it's generally the Jews. And their first interaction with the man, we can kind of sense where it's going, but the first interaction is actually good, right? The, the best response they could have had? I, I would like to put it even stronger than that. I think it's excellent. They see a man walking with a mat. He's rolled it up and he's carrying it. Now, chances are very good because there's a lot of lame and sick people around. They have no idea who this guy is. They don't know him from Adam. All they know is that he's been walking around carrying something that he ought not carry. They say, you, you can't do this. This is against the law. This is bad. God has said, don't do this, and you're doing this. So listen to the words of Jeremiah 17, 20 through 22. Hear the word of the Lord, you kings of Judah and all Judah. That's where the Jews came from, and all Judah, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem who enter by these gates. Thus says the Lord, Take care for the sake of your lives, and do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day, or bring it to the gates of Jerusalem. Do not carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath or any work, but keep the Sabbath holy, as I commanded your fathers. He goes on to say, But your fathers were stiff-necked, and they didn't care about it. At least these Jews care about the word of God enough to look at somebody and say, I don't know why you're carrying that. You ought not be carrying it. Now, time is going to forbid us today from talking about the Sabbath controversy and why it is what it is and how Jesus' response is not breaking the Sabbath. We will talk about that in the future. Today, we don't have time. The first question, I think, is right and good and, and excellent. The second question is also right and good and excellent, but it's worded really badly. What they want to know is who interacted with this man who let this happen. Who, who has actually done this stuff? That's the right question. That's the right question. It's not you that we're actually concerned with now. It's this other guy that we're concerned with. The problem is how they put it. They said, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Nah, you're getting at the right question. We want to know who the guy is, but the wrong reason. Not because Jesus said, but because Jesus healed. What they should have asked is, who healed you? Who healed you? The wording reveals our priorities. After all, we chafe when we're called pro-choice, when we're anti-choice, when we're actually pro-life. 
wording matters. The way things are worded matter. See, these people are not out for understanding. They're out for blame. Who said that to you? And the real question is, who has healed you? Again, we're going to talk more about them in the future and about how they interacted with the Sabbath and about Jesus' answer. But notice what happens to this man. The scholar earlier talked about this man sort of turning Jesus over, tattling on him, if you would. Because he finds out who Jesus is, and then it says he went to the authorities, he went to the Jews and said that it was Jesus who healed him. Notice, he went to the Jews, though. It wasn't like he ran and told the authorities. He told people who were standing around there, Jesus healed me. I honestly think that if we were to shorten the account of John 9, we could write almost the exact same thing of the bloke in John 9. And if we were going to shorten up Acts chapter 4, we could say the exact same thing of the apostles. Peter, after healing somebody, stands up in front of the midst of the Sanhedrin and the council and says to them, they inquire of him, by what power or by what name did you do this? Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, says to them, rulers of people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by which men must saved. This man doesn't tattle on Jesus as though Jesus is unable to fight his own fights, as though Jesus needed protection from the Jews, as though Jesus needed protection from anybody. Friend, Jesus doesn't need your protection either. People will oppose you. If you go out into the world and you want to proclaim that Jesus Christ has healed you, Maybe physically, maybe not. Maybe from spiritual infirmity, maybe from your lack of comfort, your lack of consolation in the world. Jesus has given you the things that you need. You go out and you claim that. People will bring opposition toward you. You don't need to defend Jesus. Jesus will do it for himself. I've quoted this earlier in the book of John. It was a long time ago. It was in John 1, so I I think that time has passed enough for me to be able to quote it again. Uh, C.H. Spurgeon, on many different occasions, used this particular example, and I think that it's helpful. Spurgeon said, A great many learned men are defending the gospel. No doubt it's a very proper and right thing to do. Yet I always notice that when there are most books of that kind, It is because the gospel itself is not being preached. Suppose a number of persons were to take it into their heads that they had to defend a lion, a full-grown king of the beasts. There he is in his cage, and here come all the soldiers of the army to fight for him. Well, I should suggest to them, if they would not object and feel that it was humbling to them, that they should kindly stand back, open the door, and let the lion out. Spurgeon says, I believe that would be the best way of defending him, for he would take care of himself. And the best apology for the gospel, the best defense for the gospel, is to let the gospel out. Never mind about defending Deuteronomy or the whole of the Pentateuch. Preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
That's what a friend, he doesn't need you to defend him. He doesn't need weak. He doesn't need insipid, lame, and invalid people to defend him. He can defend himself. People have opposition to the what Jesus has done for you. Open the word. Sit down with them. Read to them of what Jesus has done. Let Jesus defend himself. Speak the gospel to them. Let Jesus defend himself. Let him overcome their hearts. Let him change their minds. Let him overrun them so that they know the truth of the gospel. Their opposition will flee in the face of the lion of the tribe of Judah. Friends, see the need of a Savior this morning and the greatness of Jesus Christ in providing that salvation for you. If you've known your salvation, if you have known Jesus Christ for a long time, don't leave thinking that this is not for you. Daily and weekly, we need to be reminded of our own sinfulness and the greatness of what Jesus Christ has done for us. If you know that you are needy, come. If you know you are weak, come. If you know that you are sick, come. If you are burdened, come. But friends, do not leave this morning with any notion of fitness. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. In the arms of my dear Savior, there are 10,000 charms. Let us pray. Father, let us feel our brokenness and our lame limbs. Pray that the pain would linger and scream for a solution until we cry out to you for help. For you are indeed gracious to us, Father, in giving us your Son, Jesus Christ, as the remedy for our sins and the healing for our sickness. For this great work we praise you through the Spirit, for in Christ only are we brought to wholeness. King, eternal God of grace, we crown you with the highest praise. Heaven shouts and saints adore you are holy, 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 Lord. Let this praise be true for all peoples until the end of the age, for your glory and our good. Amen.